From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. The world is getting drier. Land degradation is expanding worldwide. What that looks like in Africa, for example, differs from the way land degradation presents in southeastern North Carolina. But the phenomenon affects everyone on the planet. It was 2017 when Stephen O'Brien, the U.N.'s Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, warned Security Council members that the worst humanitarian crisis since the end of the Second World War was underway. More than 20 million people were facing famine and starvation, according to the U.N. The main cause of this crisis? Drought. That was the same year, 2017 the U.N. Convention to Combat Desertification made drought mitigation one of its five strategic objectives. Desertification, in a nutshell, is desert encroaching on what has been habitable land. But desertification is only one form of land degradation. As we'll learn today, there are others, including, and especially relevant for the Cape Fear region, deforestation, urbanization. In one of the fastest growing areas in the United States, developers are taking out large swaths of natural areas and leaving dry dirt. They often install sod to create lawns and perhaps one or two immature trees, which may or may not be native to the area. This creates a litany of problems, including urban heat islands, loss of biodiversity as habitat disappears, greater potential for flooding, and stormwater runoff further polluting nearby rivers, and ultimately, the ocean. It's no wonder recent studies show trees, especially mature trees, drive up property values. But how do you continue to make room for an expanding population, keep residential and commercial development economically viable, and do a better job of protecting the planet, especially when all this is happening in tandem with climate change, which exacerbates the effects of land degradation. Narcisa Precope is a geography and geospatial sciences professor in the Earth and Ocean Sciences Department at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. In November of 2022, she was appointed to the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification. She joins me now. Dr. Prikope, welcome to Coastline. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's Appreciate really it. good to have mm. you here. Why do we say the whole world is getting drier when we're seeing shocking video from California about drenching rains and floods and mudslides, and we see sinkholes in Florida? Today, this day that we're recording this particular episode, it's been a very rainy morning after a rainy week. So it seems as though we're seeing more, more flooding, not drought. Well, that's an, that's an interesting observation. And oftentimes, a phenomenon as complex as climate change will manifest itself differently in different places at different times. Um, and it's just overall on the planet. So while globally, if you look at a percentage of the world of our land surface, we are experiencing um, 
aridification or an increase in the amount of droughts, there are parts of the world that are experiencing much wetter climates. So because of, of the nature of climate change being as complex as it is, we will see areas that are getting wetter, unusually wetter, and we'll see areas that are getting unusually drier. Now, one thing that, that um, we observe throughout the world is that the, the regions that, are, that tend to be drier are getting drier. And that tends to, to exacerbate, like you were saying, some of the issues that are being faced and some of the, some of the desertification and the drought impacts. And so when we're talking about land degradation, desertification is the most worrying expression of that. Is, is that accurate? Is that why there's a UN convention on that? There is, it's, it's, it's probably, and it's also because it's the most... Um, the most easy to observe phenomenon, right? So overall land degradation is a decline in the quality of the land, right? So that's what, what we really mean when we say de land degradation. But it, that is due to various factors. So it could be due to soil erosion, the salinization of soils in agricultural places like the California. The Imperial Valley is getting the, a huge issue there is sal salinization of the soils, which is caused by. Um, also urbanization, nutrient depletion and the loss of vegetation. Again, like you said, desertification it is really obvious. It's a phenomenon whereby desert encroaches into productive lands. And so all of a sudden, a grassland becomes a desert. It's covered in sand. And that, that, that actually happened a lot in the Sahels, this entire sub-Saharan um, region that expands from from uh, throughout the equator equatorial zone essentially from uh, Gambia and Senegal all the way into into East Africa and that's where where all of those those numbers that you cited in the beginning were coming from in that 2017 um, event now is this uh, drying of the planet in these areas human caused phenomena or is it what what's making this happen? Well, it's it's a combination of climate change, which is partially due to human causes. Well, it is due to human causes. However, in the past, if we look back six hundred thousand years or more, we have our planet has experienced these um, variabilities or these drier and wetter periods that are essentially naturally occurring. So there is an element of natural variability in our climate system that is caused by um, even uh, by essentially slight movements of the axis of the planet and things like that that, again, don't necessarily pertain to us humans. But the speed at which we have increased our carbon emissions and methane emissions over the last a couple hundred years with the Industrial Revolution is completely and um, uh, uh, completely different uh, and unprecedented relative to anything our planet has experienced with past um, similar dry spells. And I think a, a lot of our audience will understand the the contribution. Uh, that humans make to greenhouse gases and, mm -hmm. and thus climate change. Yes. But how does that contribute to desertification? Well, by driving our greenhouse gas concentration higher, we are above 400 parts per, per million of CO2 concentration in the atmosphere. That's, that's essentially a planetary threshold. We were hoping to not surpass 380. We had this goal. 
as a as a as a planet. We have surpassed that. We are way past that now. So we've we've surpassed the planetary boundary whereby we understand that once we we go beyond this, we don't really there are feedbacks and there are uh, essentially levers in our climate system and our overall planet functioning that may get triggered in ways that haven't been triggered before. So and are you talking about a, a shift in planet equilibrium? Yes. When we spoke, you you <laughs> talked about the um, International Panel on Climate Change. Yes. And that's the body that's been monitoring climate change and documenting and making uh, pronouncements. Making these, of, yes. Assessments of where we are relative to where we set our goals to be. And we get those reevaluated. So they're called um, assessments, right? That They are... Um, a, assessments that happen every four to six years so that yes and there might be a creation of another body to look specifically there's a discussion of creating another body to look specifically at planetary boundaries of how do we put bounds on how much of these components of the planet such as the climate system the water cycle um, biodiversity the the really important sort of components of our planet how much of of those can we actually Um, put out of equilibrium, so to speak, simplistically speaking, and still keep a a livable planet. And I'm really interested in what biodiversity has to do with uh, uh, upsetting the planet's equilibrium. But first, um, the UN entity for gender equality and the empowerment of women, known as UN Women, part of the United Nations system, is especially concerned with this issue of land degradation, desertification, because of its impact on women. Why does desertification disproportionately affect women? Well, if you ever go to Africa, and I've spent months of my life there, I'm happy to say and and lucky to say I've had the the opportunity to work um, and spend many months in Southern Africa, in Namibia, Botswana, and Zambia primarily. Um, but also in East Africa, which are highly populated countries, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania. And if you spend any time there and you look and see who does the lion's share of, of the work, and what I'm talking about the work is gathering firewood to cook on. That's how people still cook, the majority of, of women. So who's gathering the firewood to make food? Who's gathering the the crops off the land, who's gathering, the, who's bringing the water from the river or from the boreholes, because there's many, many of, many of the rural areas don't have um, sewer and, and water, that's disproportionate, that's 99% women. So therefore, women with, with land degradation, and this is actually, I was part of a, of a project where we actually wrote out um, we, we're trying to build some standards on how we assess, how countries assess land degradation in the first place because it's still a little bit complicated. As you said, land degradation shows itself in different ways f- throughout the planet. So somebody in Colombia versus somebody in Botswana, somebody in India will experience degradation in different ways. Women in all of these places still do the, bear, the, the lion's share of the work of, ch- of, of, pr- of producing crops gathering the water and the fuel and raising children. So that's why women tend to to disproportionately be impacted. You're listening to Coastline. It's a look at land degradation 
and what it means both abroad and we're going to get to what it means in the Cape Fear region. After this short break, we'll find out where it shows up in southeastern North Carolina and how, perhaps, local developers could change their approach. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Dr. Narcisa Pricope is my guest today. She's a professor of geography and geospatial sciences in UNCW's Department of Earth and Ocean Sciences. She's also a member of the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification. And today we're talking about what desertification means, how, for example, it shows up in Africa, but it's one form of land degradation. And we know that it shows up right here in the Cape Fear region. So, Professor Pricope, um, what are some of the ways you would identify land degradation here? Well, we, um, we see land degradation if we drive down the, the highway just coming from the university down to here, one of the big down to the, the, the studio down here. In downtown Wilmington. Downtown Wilmington. Yep. What do we see when we drive over over the bridge down the, the the parkway? We see ghost forests. There's a perfect example of land degradation of of land that is is declining in its its quality. It's changing to something else, and those are former cypress stands that are essentially are becoming inundated with salt water due to salt water intrusion into our estuary, right, into our into what previously would be a freshwater system. So we see these these remnants, these dried up trees left standing as as a signal that something is going on in our environment. And why I know this is a big question. I mean there are whole studies happening right, right now on yes, this. So you yes. don't have to go no. into great depth. But um, can you just first of all describe what a ghost forest looks like to someone who hasn't maybe looked at that and thought, oh, that's a ghost yes. forest. Yeah, so it's essentially the the main, the, the main um, bar, uh, not bark. The trunk? Trunk of a tree that is essentially standing as if the tree was alive, yet there, that tree is dead. It's no, no, has no living parts on it anymore. And so, what, yeah. what causes the saltwater intrusion? The saltwater intrusion, specifically right here where we're talking about, is caused primarily, well, it's partially caused by rising sea levels that are happening throughout the world at different paces. Here in the region, it's two to three cent millimeters per year it's happening. Um, but it's also specifically in the Kefir River um, being um, added to by, dre by the dredging in the Kefir River. So anytime we dredge the river, we pull out those sediments, salt water is able to essentially um, intrude into um, what otherwise would be essentially lenses of fresh water underground. And so that helps that salt water travel faster to the root system of these trees. And they are not equipped to deal with salt water. Right. And so what will, ha will they eventually just fall over? 
Well, I don't know. They seem to be standing. They, they have, I think they have a very deep root system. Again, I'm not the expert on that particular topic, but they probably eventually will fall over. But as it, as it is, they just but, stand as a reminder that things are changing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it suddenly sounds so much more ominous and means so much more. But these layers, but other forms of land degradation here, uh, well, you have talked about... Uh, Productive wetlands yes. transitioning into... into reeds, into these invasive reeds that we call phragmites. Um, and so that's essentially a, a, a reed type that is able to outgrow our natural, our, our native salt marsh um, species. So once they actually get introduced, and they in, get introduced usually where we disturb the soil, so anytime we put in a new a road or a new bridge or just new development, we essentially bring equipment that may have those rhizomes, those those root pieces, and they just get carried down um, that way. So with disturbance, essentially. And so the Phragmites grows really well here. It does. And it winds up choking out Chokes other out, uh, yes, native, native um, salt marsh species like Juncus or Spartina, the, the, the species that are um, native to here. And so they become then these big stands that take over everything and they don't provide the same habitat and they don't provide the same um, flood mitigating benefits um, that our native salt marshes do. They don't. So we're losing biodiversity and we're more prone to flooding when the Phragmites takes over from, from our native reeds and grasses. Yeah. There are... Other examples of land degradation here, uh, you, when we spoke earlier, mentioned pine plantations. Sure. Pine plantations that replace our previous um, upland forests uh, upland um, or, or forested wetlands or even shrub or pocosins that are also known as around here. So pine plantations are a monoculture that, again, takes out... Um, more biodiverse or or areas that used to be upland forests that had a high level of biodiversity that would um, serve as habitat for a variety of species. And now we we plant monocultures to basically manufacture toilet paper. And so we're going (laughs) to... Which we all need, by all means. Right. Everybody needs a good bog roll. That's right. So... When we think about the loss of biodiversity and the growth of an area, and and right now I'm thinking about Brunswick and Pender counties, which are just seeing, uh, you know, unparalleled growth in terms both residentially and commercially. All kinds of new subdivisions are going in and wetlands are being filled in Mm -hmm. in order to build homes. Right. So can you take us through again? You've explained this in a couple of ways, but. But I think this is an easy thread to lose. When we see a subdivision go in and we see natural forests taken out and we see non-native plants put in and lawns and things like that, mm-hmm. and we lose species, what does that mean to those people living in those houses there? Like, can you bring it back around to how it actually affects people? It might just be sad for nature lovers, right, who want to see some of the rarer Mm -hmm. species of squirrel or bird. But it's not really going to hurt anybody, is it? Yes, it will. How? Well, think back to Hurricane Florence and put yourself up in Ogden 
just the northern part of Wilmington, one of the more recent subdivisions that was built exactly in the way that, that you described. Um, when about 76% of the coastal floodplain, the coastal plain here is actually naturally wetlands, different types of wetlands. We have forested wetlands, we have shrub wetlands, and then we have these more open salt marsh type wetlands. Up in Ogden, uh, where, where we had some huge impacts in the Smith Creek watershed, specifically we had some big impacts from Hurricane Florence, this was a subdivision that essentially took out forested wetlands, a lot of them. And we put in beautiful houses. There was an attempt to put in some retention ponds to deal with the, with the created stormwater impacts. And then people moved in and everybody was happy. They had, like you said, maybe a tree here and there that wasn't even close to maturity or, or performing any kind of um, ecosystem service in the sense of allowing water to infiltrate and, and, and stemming some of, that, some of that runoff. And then a big, big sustained rainfall event like Florence that poured days for uh, rain for days happened. And then uh, everybody in that subdivision pretty much lost their homes. So, so it impacted people. We lost the biodiversity. I didn't even talk about, I write about the biodiversity. I don't even know how many trees were lost, how many squirrels, and it doesn't matter. What matters is that we have a subdivision that is now chronically at risk for flooding because if flooded once, it's probably going to happen again. People were not expecting to flood there necessarily. They aren't necessarily in a floodplain and a regulated, what we call a regulated floodplain, yet because of the nature of where we live in the coast and how flat things are and the kind of uh, ecosystems we have to take out sometimes to make room for subdivisions. And because of also the way that we build these subdivisions um, by, to, to not allow water to do what it would normally do, meaning sort of stay in place, infiltrate, slowly make its way down to, to the next um, river and the ocean, then we, we put ourselves in front of some major risks. So those human-made retention ponds in that subdivision didn't do what they were intended to do? No, because they were calculated for a certain capacity to store a certain volume of water, and um, that estimation was done based on past events. And here's the whole rub with climate change and what I said in the beginning. It's all about increased variability. We are seeing bigger rain events. We're seeing bigger hurricanes. We're seeing bigger magnitude floods, bigger magnitude droughts. And the, how they come and the order in which they come is is random almost and variable. But we, we are living in a kind of a new world where nothing is what it used to be. So we still plan with historic observed data, for example, for these. For these retention ponds, we use how much it used to rain and, you know, engineers calculate the volume based on these precipitation amounts and certain, they do curves and all that kind of stuff, so they approximate. Now, in a, in a world with new extremes, that's not necessarily going to hold. And these extremes are happening more often and at and, and a bigger magnitude. So that's why we can end up with a place like that subdivision in Smith Creek and Ogden that would have been fine with the norm in our climate and in our precipitation records, but we are not living in a normal. And so you used a term, ecosystem services. Yes. Can you describe what you mean by that term? 
Um, I just mean the invisible work and benefits that nature provides us that we don't necessarily stop to think about and or account for in our, say, economic analyses and cost-benefit analyses and things like that. So one great example is about 75% of our fruits and vegetables and nuts that we love to consume every day exist only because of an ecos- because of ecosystem services provided by bees, right? So that's that's something that we how often do you think about, right? We don't think about it. We don't it's not a part of how much we pay for avocado at the store. We don't account for the work done by the bees. It's essentially sometimes called a free service of nature, but we call them ecosystem services. And so once again, just a lot of people have heard this because it's been, it's a very understandable kind of example Mm -hmm. of ecosystem services. But if we lost our honeybees, what do we lose? We lose 70, we lose a majority of the fruits, vegetables, and nuts that we consume. Now, so much of the way developers plan to to build out an area has to do with, as you said, a cost-benefit analysis and where yes. they can make profits, and it has to be economically viable. And so part of what you're saying is these ecosystem services, we haven't really put a dollar value on them. Is there a way to do that, to factor that in? We haven't, but we have. I mean, there are ecologists, and I come from a school of thought at the University of Florida that has a big, um, essentially a big emphasis on quantifying ecosystem services, actually. So there's, I took classes in ecological valuations. There are ways we can do it. And, and typically it's done in more scientific academic circles, but yes. There are ecologists that have been thinking about this and putting essentially a, a dollar price on nature for, for decades now. So we have ways of doing this. But at the end of the day, um, we, we can put something like the, ecos- the, the, the value of a tree that one of my professors at Florida actually had calculated the value of a, of a massive um, big oak tree down in Florida. And they calculated an ecosystem value of about $8 billion for this one tree. But then how do you bring that to somebody and say, well, this tree is worth, even if it's $8 million, it's hard to... Um, how do you how do put you, that well, into how do, your... What do you do with that? Because we, right. don't, we don't know how to, how to deal with that. We still don't necessarily work with that. You're listening to Coastline. I'm talking with Professor Narcisa Bricope. She is a geography and geospatial sciences professor in the Earth and o- Ocean Sciences Department at UNCW. What are some specific ways that local developers, if they were so inclined, could start changing the way they build a neighborhood, what would actually make a difference and and strike a better balance between people and nature? I think um, building with nature. So instead of building essentially on top of nature or putting or brushing nature aside, because realistically that's what we do. We strip off the top layer of our productive topsoil, takes about a thousand years for one inch of soil to form. That's the first thing we do. Yes. Okay. Let's hold on. (laughs) It takes a thousand yes, years for one inch of yes. topsoil to develop, and the, what's what's in that, that inch of topsoil? That, what's, and that's the most important top inch of topsoil is that 
that cont- contains a lot of the humi- the humus, the, the stuff that makes the soil productive for, say, food systems. So it takes a really long time. But what we do when we develop, we strip that, that top, top, I don't know exactly how many inches they strip apart away, but that's what we do first. And so, so one thing that, again, back to your question, what we can do better is build with nature. So um, there are, and this has been, again, this is an idea that's been around for a long time. We used to, it's been called low impact development. It's had names of, there are best best practices in, in building. Um, and now we start to think about it more as green, as, as uh, weaving in something that we call green infrastructure together with this gray infrastructure. So when I say infrastructure and I say gray infrastructure, think immediately roads and asphalt and concrete, right? Gray infrastructure. That's um, Now, if we did something as simple as replacing how we pave roads in subdivisions and made that per- pavement permeable, meaning just instead of putting concrete from point A to point B as a massive block. We actually put interlocking little, um, essentially like bricks, but they're not bricks. That would allow water to not run off immediately to find a place to go, but stay in place. So one thing that, and, and again, I've said this before, and I used to teach a class, and I would have our beloved Mayor um, Sappho come and talk to the class, and then I would have one of the long-range planners from New Hanover come and talk to the class. And everybody understands that, hey, something as small as permeable, permeable pavement or installing rain barrels or putting a rain garden in, in your front yard instead of a lawn, these are big, they can make a big impact. What is in a the rain long garden? Run. What is a rain garden? What are a, the elements of that? A rain garden is essentially we we do some things in the in the substrate to make it essentially um, allow water to stay there and infiltrate slowly. But we usually plant native plants and essentially make a, a, a shallow um, a swale or just a shallow depression. Uh, line it underneath because I said what I said is what we do we do we remove the so- soil right so now we have to do some stuff down there put some put some um, gravel and put a little bit of um, sand that again allows for for water to sort of infiltrate in place and plant some native species and there you go you have your well simplistically speaking you have yourself yourself a rain garden okay so local leaders are saying it's a really good idea to install they, permeable yes. pavements roads permeable uh, Little, driveways yes and we could do rain gardens so are we doing it we I, no, not so much. We're not doing as much as we can and as much as we should be doing it. And, you know, it what do you, what do you think the obstacle is? I think the obstacle is the, the immediate bottom line. So if you look at construction costs and how much it costs to put in concrete, well, it's everybody. Any construction um, contractor knows how to pour concrete. Right. You come, you make a little you make room, you lot, you put your gravel down, you pour your concrete, you move on to the next thing. Now, it would take a little bit more time, I think, and more effort to install permeable. So it costs a little bit more up front. But then on the on the back end, you're essentially reaping some really long-term benefits. So I think it's, it's down to um, the immediate cost, the cost of construction, the cost of putting something like that, like a, like a green element, right, a green infrastructure element, like a rain garden or a permeable pavement in place versus how much it costs to do things that 
all contractors know how to do. So I think it takes a little bit of education as well. And you also said something to me about private homeowners making demands, which perhaps we can talk about when we come back from this break. You're listening to Coastline. Narcisa Pricope is a professor of geography and geospatial sciences in UNCW's Earth and Ocean Sciences Department. When we come back after this short break, we might hear about uh, some near-death experiences she's had during her travels in Africa. We'll find out how she got into science. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Narcisa Pricope is a professor of geography and geospatial sciences in the Earth and Ocean Sciences Department at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. She is also a member of the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification, a form of land degradation. Now, Professor Pricope, just before we went to break, you were saying that private homeowners at this point might have more impact in terms of getting builders to build with nature than, say, waiting for local leaders to implement policies. What, how, what are you suggesting? What would you, how would you coach a homeowner who is thinking about moving here or having a home built? What, what can they do? They can, um, I think they can probably ask to have some minimum minimum elements on their with their new construction on or on their new property um, put in place they can i mean i'm not even going to green roofs which would be an, an incredible form right another way of essentially reducing the amount of of impervious surface that they have on their property but essentially what they can do is they can ask for a reduction in impervious surface and that can come in a lot of different forms, like you said, per, pave, uh, permeable pavements, green roofs, rain barrels, um, and and such other um, water slow down mechanisms. There, are, the city even actually will even existing homeowners that have a house that's been built. 40, 50, 60 years ago, there are ways that even those homeowners can actually um, request uh, rain barrels or they can request assistance to um, to plant a native garden, and they will receive some some um, incentives and some help from the city or the county. You're talking specifically about Wilmington and New yes, Hanover County. Yes, yes. yes. and I, I'm I'm not sure. I'm that, not sure that those that resources. that's true in yes, yeah. County. Um, not yet. Can't but, speak for Penner, but yes, hopefully that's yes. on the way. And speaking of what's on the way, you are working on this project funded by NASA to preserve wetlands. Tell us about that and how it works locally. Yeah, so with a couple of colleagues of mine, um, we um, we thought about um, one way to, so, so the city and the county are increasingly interested in, in learning more and figuring out how to 
to to weave in green infrastructure in our existing area, right, in the general Wilmington metropolitan um, planning organization sort of area. And so one way of doing that is to figure out where do we have existing wetland or wetlands or where do we have existing green space that we can work with that we can maybe convert or restore or conserve to to function as these sponges to reduce the impact of flooding and oftentimes where we see the highest impact of flooding is in the areas that have obviously the most impervious cover and those areas tend to be the areas that were built first right 60 plus years ago, and those areas tend to usually be downtowns. Well, those downtowns sometimes also have the highest concentration of of um, environmentally, so environmental justice issues, right? You, have, you might have some of your underserved and some of the uh, browner communities and things like that. So with, uh, with this project funded by NASA, we are wanting to understand how we can essentially mitigate the effect of flooding in some of these downtown under-served under, um, areas that are also seeing a lot of impacts from urban heat island effects, you know, food deserts and all those. So essentially, how can we um, bring in green spaces in our current configuration because that what we have to work with is what we have but how can we um, how can we work together and how can we assist the city and the county in identifying potential areas to focus on so that's what that project is all about but it really is a collaborative effort from the ground with the city and the county and if uh, people who live here wanted to get involved today is there a way they can have some input Yes, we would be really looking for for input, especially in the downtown areas where we hope to host um, educational workshops starting in um, April, May, and then throughout the, the the year following that. So, so we'd provide some information, and we will, of course, post whatever we can in terms of resources along with this post on WHQR's website under this coastline episode. So we've talked about ways of mitigating flooding and stormwater runoff in the Cape Fear region. But just to circle back briefly to your work on the UN Convention to Combat Desertification, this is a two-year post? It's a two-year appointment on the science policy interface. So essentially, again, our role, there are um, 14 members on this our, throughout, the, from th- throughout the world, and our role is to take science and essentially make it uh, more accessible to policymakers and translate it into usable and... And so, you're, so on, on the UN Convention, you're actually working with science yes. that... Is already published. Yes, you're just putting it just together, putting it together, synthesizing it, and essentially figuring out ways that we can get that to be digestible and usable. And will along with that, will you be making policy recommendations? I believe that is part of what we would do. Yes. And I realize you're a scientist, and so we can't jump the gun because <laughs> it's two years away, and you don't want me to go there. I, but I well, I, I'm just curious. Is is there anything right now that you think 
ooh, this needs to be part of the policy recommendation? Well, I think what we we are working really on two major objectives. And you started with with drought without really even knowing. But the big focus, the two objectives that we are focusing in on this assessment, on this two-year assessment, are aridification, meaning just the, the increased essentially a frequency and intensity of droughts throughout the world and how that presents itself, and also sustainable land management. And so I've, green infrastructure and all the things we talked about that, that we can build with nature, that we can work with nature, that we have to essentially um, better integrate the natural system in how we build and how we live and how we farm and how we travel and everything, right? So those are the two the, the two suggestions and the two levers that we're hoping to be able to um, to better communicate and to 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 get a little bit of traction under. How can we um, reduce the impact of degradation and droughts by essentially creating and working with more sustainable land management practices? Now, you've done a lot of work, as we've mentioned, in Africa. Can you tell us about some adventures in Africa that perhaps stand out as, as moments? And we're all glad you're still here, yes, by the way. My, my parents are to war, too. <laughs> Although I never, I, it took years to tell them about these stories. Um, but yeah, so the biggest story that stood out, and my daughter loves this story. You know, it's, it's the hyena story is what it's known as. Yes. We, uh, I was out with my partner at the time. He was helping me in the field. And I was essentially, what I was doing, I was working on land degradation, but really I was a PhD student. I didn't really understand uh, really the full effect of what I was doing, but I had this project and I really wanted to understand how vegetation was degrading over a time period. It was 30 some years at the time. This was 2007 that I could I could essentially observe from satellite data. So I can I could take satellite data back in time to the 80s and essentially reconstruct how the vegetation had changed. But for me to do that, I had to go physically be in the field and look at the vegetation as it is now so that I can establish what it looks like now. And then based on that and on those signatures, I can take it back in the past and reconstruct essentially a change. So we were out collecting these data in the field. It was late. It was in the middle of nowhere, rural Africa. We had tents and everything that we needed to. Usually we would camp at campsites. But we thought, well, we'll just pitch down here. Tomorrow we can pick up and continue doing our vegetation work where we left off and go back to, to the real. And anyway, so we put down the tents, didn't cook anything, used canned food, jumped into our sleeping bags. Was that, was that conscious to not cook anything? Yes, yes, so that we wouldn't attract wild animals because we knew there were some, although we were in actual, we were in commu- what we call communal land. So these were areas that were inhabited by people. They were not national parks or anything like that. So we pitched down, maybe an hour, 50 minutes goes by, it's dark out, and we start hearing some roof, roof, roof. I thought, oh, wow, so we're closer to humans than I thought, I like think. Like barking. Like you're, barking, You're thinking yes. like a domesticated yes, I dog. Thought, oh, we must be closer to a village than we thought, even though I knew that there weren't any villages. So we just just stay there in the tent, and then the barking gets closer. And they're like, huh, that's weird. But I was actually listening to something in my ear pods. So I had my AirPods in even. Well, not AirPods, but they were just headphones at the time. 
And then all of a sudden, by the tent, I was, you, we heard, doo, 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 <gasps> like some big animal was just like running by. And we just realized, oh, my gosh. So essentially, I made a dash. I ran into the truck. And then my partner jumped into the back of the truck. And that's when it's this massive heat. He says the hyena essentially almost like grabbed his legs. So then I turn on the, the lights in the truck and I see a very, very large hyena that was right there looking at me, staring at me through the windshield of this truck. And I have never felt more scared in my life. So that like, is terrifying. That hyena could have, for all I know, jumped through the windshield and gotten me right there. But yes, yeah, that was scary. That was a very close call. <laughs> wow. So was that just bad luck? Or, that I was mean, if poor you went... planning. I mean, I don't. I'm saying this on public radio. Probably shouldn't. Don't do that. The, the mistake was you camping where kid. we. Yes, yes. So that was not a good move. But yeah, there are some some dangers that come with wow, trying that... to study land degradation in a savanna system that has essentially a lot of wild animals. And part of your work is looking at human environment interactions. Yes. And and what is is that an example of that, that or, or what does that mean? That is an example. Well, that is an example of that. <laughs> that is an example of what happens when humans get in the natural habitat of what is that is the habitat of wild animals, really, realistically. And incidentally, that area is plagued with human wildlife conflict, actually. And that's one of the things that what by working in that region, you come to really become aware of and understand that, yes, we value wild animals and we value biodiversity. And in some places like Southern Africa, where we still have incredible richness, thankfully, of, of megafauna and a range of, of wild animals. Um, and there are people also who live there. And oftentimes we, 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 we want to protect the animals. We want to we have them in national parks. We have them in these really cool connected national parks now. But humans are living with those animals or you can say humans are in the animals habitat. But there's a lot of human wildlife conflict happening um, and a lot of a lot of humans kind of losing their lives essentially because we keep these animals in these national parks and we want them and we want to go visit them. So there's also a little bit of a flip side of in some places, we, we've killed off our big megafauna, say, in North America a long time ago. But in some places like Southern Africa and Eastern Africa, it's a slightly different story. And oftentimes in those areas, and that's a topic for another episode, yeah. hunting, big big game hunting is considered, oh, that's a bad thing. But it's necessarily, it doesn't, it's not always that way because oftentimes animals need to, to be cold, cold, kept in check. We love our hyenas, but we don't want to curl up with them <laughs> in the tent at night. Yeah, so, so we just have a few minutes left. And I, I know you, so much of your work happens by through drone technology and and newer technology, the way you gather data. And it's one of the ways that you inspire your students because you were so inspired by, I mean, you you credit your teachers. I do. With all of your teachers, like growing up your whole life yes. with with really lighting the fire in your belly about science, that, that curiosity. Mm-hmm. So can you just tell us a little bit about how you collect data and why the drone technology is so important to you? 
So I started collecting data in exactly the same way I just explained with this hyena incident. We'd go out in the field and we'd, we would bring a compass and we would bring a paper and all these tables and we would bring a GPS and we would bring a camera and I'd be walking around with, with literally seven things around my neck and going and, and walking and doing all these things and it's, sometimes it's dangerous. Um, and that's how we collected data. It was a lot of manual entry, and then you get back and you enter that into a computer, and then you go from there. And drones have essentially, and as because this kind of work needs to happen for us to be able to use data from satellites, right, to to bring it kind of down to earth and essentially reference it to real world what's happening on the ground. So with drones, what we can do now is we can actually cover more ground. We can um, we can access areas that were previously potentially dangerous or 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 fragile ecosystems like wetlands where you don't want to be sending a team necessarily to to walk around and destroy those those fragile plant species and everything. So we can use drones in in these areas and in these contexts to kind of help us fill the gap between what we observe from space and what we can gather from space and what we would do uh, boots on the ground. We still need boots on the ground, but less so. And how does this, how do you get the interest of the next generation with this technology? I think you just give them, you give them the joysticks, right? It's essentially, <laughs> you're putting them back into their video games, but all of a sudden they're doing this for credit and they're doing this and they're they're lighting up and they're understanding, oh, I can, I can actually not only play with these drones, but I can collect data and I can... I can plan this and I can do this quantitatively and I can do this to standards and I can actually get paid to do this, it blows people's minds. And you've heard from some past students. I have. Haven't you? What, yes. what have you heard? Um, they, they have essentially found, some will say that they have found their, their passion, their calling, that they are, they're not working, but they're in, they're in a career. They have found what they're passionate about, and they're doing that every day, and they're getting paid to do it. And that's yeah, what, what, what it's all about. And they credit you with leading them to that well, place. Maybe just opening their eyes to it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's this edition of Coastline. Professor Narcisa Pricope, thank you so much for being with us thank today. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you very much for the invite. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Fresnel engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook. Find us at WHQR's Coastline hosted by, or just send us an email at coastline at whqr.org. Find the episode along with those resources at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Thank you.